Well, we are continuing in our sermon series called Joy in Christ uh, this morning and through this video. And today uh, we are up to Christmas. And again, I know that's odd. I know it's Mother's Day. I know that's weird. But we're going to be talking about Christmas and the baby born in the manger and how our joy must be rooted in that historical event, that historical person, Jesus Christ, God with us. And you know, really, when you think about it, during this time of the pandemic and social distancing, I don't know about you, but I don't usually know what day it is anyway. So maybe it's May, maybe it's December. It did snow yesterday, after all. Who knows? We can celebrate Christmas anytime we want. And really, should the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ be a one day a year sort of thing, or should we constantly be celebrating that? So that's what we're going to do this morning. So far in this sermon series, Enjoy in Christ, we have looked at what biblical joy is, and specifically the idea that our joy must be rooted in something deeper than ourselves, something outside of our circumstances, outside of our culture, our lives. We need roots that go down into something unshakable and unchangeable. And the Bible says that's Jesus Christ and salvation in Christ and the relationship we have with God. So we looked at that. We looked at how we're created for joy, that God has a purpose that he built into our very creation for us to find our joy by living in his presence, living in his glory and living for his glory. So we were created for joy. We looked at as a part of that sermon and the next one, how sin is a joy killer. Sin comes in to offer a counterfeit joy that ultimately kills our ultimate joy in Jesus Christ. It seeks to destroy God's creative purpose and to divide us from God and to drive us from his presence, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3. We looked last week at God's efforts throughout the Old Testament as he carried out his plan to reestablish a relationship with us with his people. He initiated that relationship by calling Abraham into a relationship with him. And he promised to Abraham that he would work through Abraham and bless Abraham and through Abraham, bless the entire world. And that's us today. We are blessed through the promise that God made to Abraham so long ago. He established his presence among his people, that God was with his people in the tabernacle, his presence right there camped out among his people. And there was this constant reminder that he was with them, but also a constant reminder that he is holy and that they are sinners and therefore separated from that presence. He's there with them, but there were all these barriers and all these rituals that had to be put into place. He gave them his law to describe what it means to live in a relationship with God, but it also made it able or obvious that that law is unable to remove the sin entirely to truly fix the problem that separated them from God in the first place. You know, everything that God does throughout the Old Testament shows his effort and his willingness to restore our relationship with him. But equally, it shows that there is a key issue that must be dealt with. The issue that is the fundamental problem between us and God is our sin. We are sinners. We live in rebellion against our creator, God. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God telling his people that he, God, will be the one that must fix the problem of our rebellion and our sin. And so we come this morning to a very famous Christmas passage. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 where we read, 
And there were shepherds living out in fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And we're going to look at this incredible statement from the angel as a messenger of God to the shepherds, but really ultimately through the shepherds to the messenger of all the people and still as a message to us today. And it is a message of good news that will cause great joy. So I want to look at why. Why does this good news that the angel is talking about, which is the birth of Jesus, why is that good news and great joy? Well, the angel uses three titles for Jesus in this passage. I want to look at actually the second two or the last two together, and that is he is Messiah, the Lord. Messiah is a Jewish word. Um, some translations use just the transliteration of the Greek word, which is Christ. Christ and Messiah really mean the same thing. And at their root, they mean anointed one. That's basically what they mean, one who is anointed. Now, sometimes people were anointed like a prophet for a purpose. Sometimes God's people are called his anointed because they're his people. But ultimately, or usually, the term anointed one was used of the king the king who was anointed by God to lead his people. And God promised in the Old Testament to King David that his line, his family line of kings would last forever. We see this in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. He says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And it's that last phrase that is kind of hard to swallow. Because human kings come and go. There are uprisings, there are coups, and one general uprises and overthrows a king and he puts his son on the throne. This happened all the time. So for God to promise to David that your son's family line, which in this case was Solomon, but it's still David's family line, would last forever on the throne of Judah, which means as long as there was a king in Judah and ultimately somewhere in Israel, God is promising David it will be one of your offspring that will sit on that throne. That's a powerful promise to make. But if we skip forward a long time to Hosea chapter 3, verse 4, we see that God tells his people through the prophet Hosea, for the Israelites will live many days without a king or prince. So here we have a promise that as long as there is a king on the throne, it will be one of David's offspring. And then we have a prophecy saying, but there is coming a time that there will be no king on the throne. In fact, for about 480 years before Jesus Christ is born, there is no king in Israel. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 seemed to be lost. After the last king, of Israel and and Judah, the people go into exile and they are without the land that they were promised. They are without the king that they are promised. And God gives a message to the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter nine, verse 25. 
And he says this, no one understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. But there's a lot going on in there and people love to look at these numbers and it's a fascinating study. But what I want us to focus in on is the anointed one, the ruler, is going to come. Now they're in exile. There is no king in Israel when this goes on. And there's really no hope at this point of them returning. They will return eventually. But at this moment, this is an amazing prophecy. There is going to be an anointed one in Israel. He is going to sit on the throne. The Messiah throughout the Old Testament was this promised leader, this promised king that was going to come, this deliverer who would overthrow the Romans, who would shake off the shackles of their servanthood to the Roman Empire, who would restore God's promises to his people, Israel. By the time of Jesus, the people understood that they needed a conquering king to come in and fix what was broken in Israel which was primarily to throw off the Roman oppressors. But the angel's message in Luke chapter 2 contains another interesting title. Not only do we have Messiah, this anointed one, this promised king that's coming, but the angel also says he is the Lord. And that word Lord is the Greek word used throughout the New Testament for the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. Now we have to be careful here. Because every time you see the word Lord, it's not necessarily used that way. It could be used kind of as a sir and master to uh, an earthly ruler or an earthly master or a term of respect. But the question is, is that the way the angel is using this? And I think in the context of an angel delivering a message from the Lord, when she, or when he rather, when he says to the shepherds that this person that has been born in a manger is Messiah and the Lord, it's more than just a term of respect. In fact, if we fast forward to the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, we see this, the people cry out. This is Palm Sunday, which we celebrate uh, the week before Easter. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's being celebrated by the crowds and they are crying out and this is what they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You see that there? Blessed is the king. So there's that kind of Messiah. Now, that's not the word that's used there. It's just a general word for king. But it's this idea of the kingship of Jesus. They say, that's our king. But then they say, he's come in the name of the Lord. Now, understand the people are saying, here's our king, and he is a representative sent by the Lord, God. He is on behalf of or in the name of the Lord. They're not actually calling Jesus God in this passage. But the angel takes this much, much farther than the people did, because I don't think the people understood something that the angel did. Let's look back at that phrase in Luke chapter 2, 11. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, or some translations will say Christ, the Lord. Now, it's not that he is Messiah and also or sort of kind of the Lord. It's these two things are equally true about him. He is both Messiah, the promised king, and he is the Lord. What the angel is saying is that God was born on Christmas morning. Now, don't get me wrong. God always existed, 
but he took on flesh. We call this the incarnation. Matthew picks up this idea in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The angel is saying, not only has God sent you a Messiah, a king, to rule over you, but that Messiah is actually God. God himself has come to be with us and to be our king. The good news of great joy that the angel is announcing is that God has come. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, the promised king and the presence of God. The separation between us and God. This distance that was caused because of our sin, this gulf that separates him, us from him that we cannot cross was crossed by God himself. Charles Spurgeon states in a sermon called Joy Born at Bethlehem, as in the case of war, the feud is ended when opposing parties intermarry. So there is no more war between God and man because God has taken man into intimate union with himself. Herein, then, there was cause for joy. And what he's referring to is kind of the old practice when two kingdoms would go to war. Sometimes the only way to stop that war or at the end of a war to bring peace, one king would give his son or daughter into marriage to the other king's son or daughter. And this intermarrying of the two kingdoms took these two things and made one. And Spurgeon is beautifully applying that to the incarnation. God with us. Jesus, God, was born human, us, taking these two separate things and bringing them together. We are no longer separated from God. Or at least we no longer have to be. God is no longer distant. He is with us. But the question now is, is everything good now? Is, is everything just okay then? Is the, the relationships just restored, right? God crossed the divide and he came and, and was with us in the manger and Jesus is born and he lives among the people and everything's just fine now because the relationship is restored. No. No, because that's not all that Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to be born in the manger. The problem separating God and us still remains after Jesus is born. A major problem has been solved. We are no longer completely separated. God has crossed that divide. But the problem of sin is still there and must be dealt with, which is why the angel says another title for Jesus. He calls Jesus Savior. Savior. You know, some people sometimes ask, if God can just forgive sins, if he can just give grace, why doesn't he just look at humanity and say, I know you're sinners, but it's okay. I'm just going to overlook it. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to count it against you. Couldn't he just do that? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Isn't that cruel? Isn't it mean for God the Father to put God the Son on the cross? 
And some people will say, well, it was a demonstration of his love. Certainly, Jesus' death on the cross demonstrates God's love. But if that's all that Jesus' death on the cross is, it's just a demonstration of God's love. It is a cruel and awful demonstration. Jesus went to the cross because the problem between us and God is our sin, and that problem had to be solved. There are some really good biblical words about the solving of this problem so that the relationship can be restored. In the Old Testament, the most common word is atonement. We see this in the sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament law that was going on in the tabernacle. The priests would offer these sacrifices of atonement to cover over the sin for a while to restore the relationship. The word that's most often used in the New Testament is reconciliation the restoration of the relationship between God and us. Scripture is clear that the payment or the punishment of sin is death. And I spoke last week that throughout the Old Testament, there is a clear theme that sin must be dealt with. It must be punished. It must be removed. The penalty must be paid. And the penalty of sin is death. That's the problem between us and God. Paul writes a beautiful passage on reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. It starts in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And I love that. I, I, Pretty sure I used this verse when we talked about joy in creation. That in Christ we are a new creation. God's creative purposes are restored. But I'm not going to go off on that tangent too much. He goes on and says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This is Paul's beating heart in ministry, to tell people God has reconciled you to himself. He has provided a way of reconciling. And he says, not counting your sins against you. And that's what people want, right? Can't God just not count our sins against us? And the answer is yes, but. Everything in this passage on reconciliation hinges on the last passage, or the last verse, rather, in verse 21. God, oh, I missed this one, sorry. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to the to God. There's Paul's beating heart ministry. Sorry about that. And then we move on to the last verse. This is verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's the essence of the reconciliation. It's not just God overlooking sin and just saying, it's okay, don't worry, we'll just go uh, go on as if it didn't happen or as if it doesn't exist. Reconciliation is God's way of dealing with sin. Jesus Christ came to be our Savior, to pay the price for our sin. Now, how does this happen? How was Jesus made sin for us? What does this mean? And the New Testament loves to answer this. I'm just going to look at a couple passages in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What Peter is saying is what Jesus did on the cross, he did for you. 
The penalty he paid, it was your penalty and he paid it. The death that he died, it was your death and he died it. And because he's risen from the grave, he gives you that life. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's the essence of the Savior Jesus and what he did for us. That's the reconciliation between us and God. But Peter's not done. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. There is that Savior that reconciled us by taking our sin. He suffered once for our sins, the righteous, the perfect sacrifice in our place. We are unrighteous so that we could be brought to, reconciled to God. Now, where's Peter getting this from? Well, he spent a lot of time with Jesus. He, he listened to Jesus and learned from Jesus, but there's an interesting corollary passage in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter three, uh, 53 verses four through six. Very famous passage. Isaiah says, surely, He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Several hundred years before Jesus Christ, Messiah, Lord, was born in the manger as Savior, Isaiah said, he's coming. And this is what he's going to do because this is what you need to be reconciled to God. God did not just overlook our sin. Jesus' death wasn't just a demonstration of God's commitment or love that is so cruel. It was the absolute necessary price that had to be paid in order for us to be saved from our sins. Jesus didn't come to just be our Messiah leader and king. He didn't just come to be God with us, hanging out as if the sin never took place. He came to be our Savior. And this meant that the baby born on Christmas had to go to the cross, chose to go to the cross for you for me to take our sins, to pay the penalty in our place. This this is the joy of Christmas. And not the holiday Christmas, not the day Christmas, the truth of Christmas. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born in the manger. It is the joy of Christ's coming, the good news of great joy that will be for all the people and still is for all the people. This can be your joy too, and mine as well. Jesus is our Messiah. He is our anointed King. Is he yours? Is he the leader in your life? Do you look to Jesus and say, you are my King, you are my Messiah? Jesus is our Lord. He is truly God, truly God with us. Not just our buddy, buddy, but the all-holy God who has come to be with us. Is Jesus God to you? Do you worship him as Lord Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and say, you are God, and I am not? He is God with us. From eternity past to eternity future, our creator, our judge, but he's also our savior. Have you accepted 
that it's only through Jesus Christ you can be saved. That the problem between you and God must be solved, but it cannot be solved by you. It can't be solved by me. It can only be solved by Jesus Christ. And the joy rooted in Christ, proclaimed on Christmas morning, that we need to hold on to every day of the year, is that Jesus Christ did come. He is our Messiah. He is our God. And he is our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we truly, as your people, be people who celebrate Christmas all the time. May we look at the joy of Christmas and say, that's my joy. That good news of great joy is the truth that I build my life on. May each one of us look to Jesus and say, you're my king, you are my God, you are my savior. And it is in that truth and those truths alone that we will sink the roots of our joy. The problem between us and you has been solved by you. You cross the divide and you are with us and you have saved us through your son, Jesus. Oh, Father, help us to hold on to that joy when there is so much around us seemingly trying to tear it away from us. In your glorious and powerful name, and in the name of your Son, our Messiah, our God, and our Savior, we pray. Amen.